0: Thursday, July 18th, 2019, this is the Hermetic Hour, and tonight we will review and discuss America Cosmic by Diana Pasulka. Again, our guest reviewer will be Frater Demuzi. Diana Pasulka is a professor of religious studies and approaches the UFO phenomenon from her academic perspective. She is a colleague of Jacques Vallee and shares many of his views. She quotes Carl Jung and cites the experiences, the experiences and work of numerous experiencers. This is her term for contactees. She compares the UFO sightings and encounters to religious and mystical uh, encounters, such as the miracle of Fatima and uh, UFO artifacts to the Shroud of Turin. She also suggests that popular media feeds and perpetuates the phenomenon. Her approach is very subjective and impressionistic, and her narrative is rambling and not well-focused. But this, in and of itself, reflects the history of the activity she is attempting to describe. So... If you think the truth is out there, then tune in, and we'll uh, look at uh, Dr. Pesuka's X-Files. All right, this book starts off with great promises of revelations, which it frankly does not deliver. In the preface, the author tells us that her academic credentials as a professor of religious studies have entitled her to join the Invisible College, of anonymous scientists who really know what the UFO phenomenon is all about. The presiding dean of this secret institution is Jacques Vallée, who is her first contact and the first character she mentions in her preface. The rest of the Invisibles are given pseudonyms, The most important she calls Tyler Durden and even quotes the famous first rule of Fight Club as a justification for her choice. Of course, we immediately wonder if Tyler is supposed to be a real person or a projection of Diana Pasulka's personality, her Jungian animus perhaps. This almost seems possible when at the end of the book she and Tyler visit the Vatican and he has an epiphany which leads to his conversion to Catholicism. Now, because the preface is the best and most exciting part of the book, we will read it for you. There are hills of Silicon Valley. These are the hills of Silicon Valley. There are many secrets in this valley. Jacques Pelé maneuvers his car expertly through the daunting San Francisco Bay Area traffic, darting this way and that. Large trucks and small cars barrel toward us on the winding roads, and crashes are narrowly evaded. Every twenty minutes I lift my shoulders. We are stuck to the back of the which are stuck to the back of the car seat and try to shake out the tension. Jacques, father of the modern study of UFOs and an early visionary of the internet, is giving me and my colleague Robbie Graham a personal tour of his favorite geolocation, Silicon Valley. We drive by places that loom large in the history of the valley. He recalls the early days of the technology revolution. They were on fire and purely democratic, pure scientists, fueled by discovery. Jacques' credentials are intimidating. He's an astronomer. He helped NSA create the first detailed map of Mars. As a computer scientist with a Ph.D. from Northwestern University, he was one of the early engineers of ARPANET the Advanced Research Projects Agency, and a precursor of the Internet. He is also a successful venture capitalist, funding startups, innovative technologies that have changed the daily lives of millions of people. He is a prolific author. He's probably most famous for being a consultant to Steven Spielberg on the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 1977. The scientist character in the movie, played by the French actor Francois Truffaut, is based on Jacques Vallée. Jacques has perhaps done more for the field of ufology than anyone else in its short history, yet he calls the study of UFOs his hobby. This is the orthodox history of Jacques' life and work. His unorthodox history is equally interesting. He worked with scientists affiliated with the Stanford Research Institute, now SRI International, an Independent Nonprofit Research Institute in Menlo Park. The group's activities are largely unknown to the public. But declassified documents from the 1970s and 1980s indicate that it was a research site for the extraordinary. Jacques did his early work on the Internet under a program that, as Jeffrey Karpal writes, was probably called Augmentation of the Human Intellect. This research was happening at the same time in the same place as studies of remote viewing, precognition, and extrasensory perception. These esoteric skills were studied under a classified program called the Stargate Project, funded by the U.S. military in partnership with the SRI. The hope was the skills and talents of people who were naturally psychic could be developed and harnessed for the purposes of gathering intelligence. In the course of the research, the psychic viewers reportedly uncovered unintended and surprising targets like UFOs. The participants in the program also reported that they could travel through space to the moon and to other planets like Mars. In other words, the program allegedly developed intentionally or not psychic cosmonauts. This, of course, is fascinating and comes right directly out of Hermes Trismegistus' treatise. Perhaps unknown to Jacques and the researchers of the SRI, psychic travel had... Long been reported, psychic cosmonauts like the 18th century philosopher theologian Emanuel Swedenborg crop up throughout the history of religions. Swedenborg claimed that with the assistance of an angel, he had visited Mercury, Mars, Venus, and the moon. He claimed to have spoken to beings on those planets, and he published his experiences in a book, Life on Other Planets, 1758. The activities of the cosmonauts of the SRI may have resembled the interstellar adventures of Swedenborg, but their goals could not have been more different. They hoped to operationalize the knowledge they had acquired about terrestrial targets. Remote viewing was one of the many methods of attempted data collection. These efforts to create human portals to other planets were taking place under the same auspices and at the same time as technologies of connectivity on the Internet. As we spun down the highway, I recognized the neighborhoods of my childhood, but I saw them now through Jacques' eyes. The streets, the smell, the eucalyptus trees, parks, schools, cafes, all looked new to me, shining with the allure of mystery. As much as I wanted to, I never got up the nerve to ask Jacques exactly what he meant by the secrets of Silicon Valley. But on the drive... I caught a glimpse of the exciting ideology and philosophy behind the revolution, It's psychist. If Schach were an essay, he would be called The Question Concerning Technology by the philosopher Martin Heidegger. This essay, dubbed impenetrable by many readers, nevertheless offers several intriguing observations about the relationship between humans and technology. As Heidegger saw it, Humans do not understand the essence of technology. Instead, they are blinded by it and view it as simply as an The interpretation of technology as pure instrumentality was wrong. He said the Greek temple for the Greeks housed the gods, and as such it was a sacred flame. Similarly, the medieval cathedral embodied and housed the presence of God for medieval Europeans. Heidegger suggested that the human relationships with technology, is religious-like, and that it's possible for us to have a non-instrumental relationship with technology and engage fully with what it really is, a saving power. Jacques Vallée is fully aware of the revolution of this technology, although he most likely never read Heidegger's essay. Jacques' depiction of Silicon Valley as the home of the new Resonates with Heidegger's vision of technology as bringing to birth a new era of human experience, a new epic. The symbol of this new epic is the UFO. Carl Jung called the UFO a technological angel. This is a book about UFOs and technology, but also about a group of people who believe anomalous technology functions as creative inspiration. I found these people in the 1970s when Jacques consulted on Close Encounters. Now, this is very important. I found these people in 1970, when Jacques consulted on Close Encounters, he encouraged Spielberg to portray the more complex version of the story. That is, that the phenomenon is complex and might not be extraterrestrial at all. But Spielberg went with the simple story, the one everybody would understand, he said. This is Hollywood. This book does not tell the simple story, but I believe it is a story anyone can understand. That, as I said, the most important, probably the most important line in this whole book, because Jacques Vallée does not believe that UFOs are extraterrestrial, and neither do we. UFOs are interdimensional, and that is what that paragraph says in the uh, preface. So the preface really, really sets you up for the book. And unfortunately, it's a disappointment. Primarily, it's a disappointment to the people who want materialistic answer to the UFO phenomenon, because as she eventually discovers through the book, there are no answers for the materialists. And she is very right. This is a spiritual phenomenon. Now, after telling us that she has been accepted by the invisibles, she issues an ambiguous disclaimer, assuring her readers that she does not have a security clearance, that she's not involved in an official or non-official document disclosure effort, and that she has no special knowledge not available to the general public. (laughs) She begins her account with a description of a blindfolded journey to one of the early New Mexico UFO crash sites. She's taken there by the scientist she calls Tyler, and another invisible she calls James, another scientist. James is the custodian of an artifact recovered from this site, which he claims has been examined by experts and declared to be not of this world. We get no other descriptions of this object, but we are told that there are other pieces of debris from the crash still to be found, and James has brought along a lot of metal detector so that Diana and Tyler can go on a treasure hunt with him. Before they start the hunt, James reveals that the area has been used as a location setting for the X-Files. Diana tactfully refrains from asking them, well, then why the blindfold? But she does wonder if she's being hoaxed by her invisibles. Now, because of her nonlinear style, we don't discover what they found with the metal detector until two chapters later. And what they found turns out to be of terrestrial origin. So the whole crash site adventure is just as much confabulated hype as Diana subsequently discovers to be the source of much of the UFO mystery. Personally, I believe that her journey to the desert was her initiation into the mystery. Hence the blindfold, like the old Masonic Rite of Strict Observance. The desert was her chamber of reflection. The line from the X-Files, I want to believe, was her declaration of faith. Her invisibles had initiated her, and she would eventually initiate Tyler into the Catholic Church. So what goes around comes around. Now, having been initiated and having initiated her readers, she devotes the rest of the book to espousing the premise that UFOism is a new religion and that it's... Unidentified flying objects are the modern version of medieval angel. She cites a case where a sick family dog is healed by a glowing apparition to a woman who is a devout Roman Catholic, and she calls this apparition an angel. She interviews a graphic designer who exposes fake UFO photos, and she concludes that most UFO photos are faked and that the true believers are only trying to fabricate what they honestly believe they've witnessed. Now, she believes that our fascination with science fiction films and television shows since the 1950s, especially Star Trek and Star Wars, has imprinted our brains with space travel and space alien templates, and she cites several studies to confirm this. She goes on to equate the UFO visions with Catholic miracles like the miracle of Fatima, emphasizing how crowds of people can be caught up in visualizing the phenomenon. She also equates the modern remote viewing systems with a Catholic nun of the 1600s who projected her astral form from Europe to southwestern America and made contact with the Native Americans who later confirmed this to Spanish explorers. They had seen the Blue Lady. And of course, this is a hermetic, not a Roman Catholic technique, but then Hermes Trismegistus did receive the Catholic imprimatur prior to 1614 but after 1614 anonymous flying in dangerous airspace. There are many more fascinating accounts recalled in the book but the overall impression that we get is that Carl Jung was probably right when he opined that UFOs are today's holy angels. And as for my impression, I believe that Diana's book propels the reader to a complex and multifaceted conclusion, which is that, yes, UFOs are technologically real, but they are also imaginary and are creations of group consciousness. They are interdimensional rather than extraterrestrial, and they are friendly as well as dangerous. Diana confirms that science fiction had much to do with creating this phenomenon, but she has her entire time frame out of phase. The programming for this new religion or revelation began not in the 1960s, but in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It was all revealed by Raymond A. Palmer and Richard S. Shaver in the late 1940s, and it was called the Shaver Mystery. And it had nearly a million true believers. It was the origin of ancient aliens and ancient astronauts, and the UFO sightings began in the years when the Shaver Mystery was popular. Okay, Prater de that that's my take. You want to take it from there?
1: Uh, yeah. How are you doing this evening?
0: Well, I'm. I don't know. I don't sound like I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm doing okay. So let's talk about this dichotomy with what she's presenting here. You know, I I'm critical of the book, very critical of the way it's written, and I'm not a materialist myself. Her major conclusions, I basically agree with. I think she's. Uh, um she offended a lot of people by promising, you know, by promising a lot of stuff and, and and to the materialists and not delivering anything. I mean, uh so what do you think about that?
1: All right. Well, first off, I enjoyed the book. I'm glad she wrote the book, but we also have to realize too that this book was published by Oxford Press. So, it's an academic uh publishing house, so she, you know, she had to adhere to strict guidelines, but you know, I'm sure she could have had more fun and done more if she published it with somebody else, like a non-academic uh, publisher, but I thoroughly enjoyed the book. Do I think it was earth-shattering or a groundbreaking book? No. Most of it's all already rehashed information that everybody into the whole ufo thing already knows i didn't come out of it with learning anything new or forming a new perspective on the phenomenon but i think what she did was good the whole story about james and tyler first of all the book is non-linear she bounces all over the place which i see why she did it based on like i assume what she was trying to get readers to uh Think You know, to try to justify some of her thinking. But she kind of lost me the last chapter with the whole Vatican thing with Tyler and his conversion. Like it almost seemed like it was propaganda for the Catholic Church. You know that I'm not a fan of the Abrahamic religion. So I was kind of turned off at the end. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. It seems in a way like almost like the book needs an imprimatur. An imprimatur is what the Catholics used to put on books. Uh, The church would put on a book it approved of, give them an imprimatur. And of course, if the church didn't approve of it back during the Renaissance, they would confiscate the books and they would burn them. And sometimes they'd burn the author wrong with the books.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. you know, so, uh, you know, this book almost needs an imprimatur on it because it obviously reflects the viewpoint of the Catholic Church. And she manages to oversee her friend Tyler's conversion. The thing that kind of turned me off about this book, which is
1: like every other book, She introduces these really interesting, mysterious characters, but she still has to refer to them in a pseudonym, like this whole Tyler and James thing. But she leaves enough breadcrumbs in the book for people to go out and search via the Internet or whatever to figure out who the actual people really are. You know what I mean? What she did with Tyler and what she did with James. And the Internet people seem to agree. Tyler is that Timothy E. Taylor, and then the James character is that uh, Gary Nolan guy. I don't even know why she bothered to use pseudonyms for these guys.
0: Wow, wait a minute. Your description of, of James' character, I just listened to her on Whitley Strieber's podcast, and she's going on about how James is a very famous, uh, successful scientist. And, and uh, is that guy you were talking about that you think is James, yeah. is he a very successful scientist? Yeah,
1: that's a Gary
0: North. Yeah, Academ- academic credentials and everything? Yep. Yeah, okay then. Good then. Maybe that fits. As far as the Tyler thing is concerned, I, I found that a little offensive because, as I said in my review, character of Tyler Durden is a projection of an element of a person's personality. It's the imaginary friend. You remember in the latter part of the movie when they finally come together and and his imaginary friend beats him up. Edward Norton's imaginary friend beats him up. That Brad Pitt's beating him up. And Pitt is, you know, he's saying, well, I'm your imaginary friend. And then, you know, and they have this fight, and you see it from the security cameras, and Norton is just beating himself up. And then when you see it without the security cameras, you see Brad Pitt there. (laughs) And you wonder, you know, knowing uh, Fight Club is a very popular film, we've all seen it. So it makes you wonder how much of this is a projection of Diana herself. I think that was a very, very poor choice of pseudonyms especially when you're dealing with something that is as popular as fight Club. But anyway, that's a minor, that's a, that's a picky and cattle. So I won't fault her too much on that, but you know, no, the no, thing, I'm not really they,
1: faulting her for using the student. No, no. I get no. it, but she also left enough breadcrumbs in the book where the reader can no. go out and figure out who these dudes are. But you know what? Like I told you yesterday, I'm glad that, Another academic is writing a book on this topic and giving their spin and spiel on it. And there was actually a lot of decent, good Easter egg kind of things in here. Like I thoroughly enjoyed when she was talking about that Scott Brown guy who heads that uh, in the field with oh, the debunking. That's
0: fascinating. Yeah, yeah. The fascinating thing about that is that Brown is debunking for the most sincere reasons. He's debunking people's Fake photos. And, of course, they're getting mad at him because they not only believe they're fake photos, but other people believe they're fake photos. Of course, she never doesn't mention, and I don't know why, she she doesn't backtrack into the original history of all this stuff very well. She doesn't mention Adamski's lampshade. That was the first fake UFO photo, and Adamski, he got a lampshade and suspended it on a wire and took photographs of it,
1: yeah. And it
0: looked, yeah, yeah, that was the first fake UFO. Boy, that lampshade really looked like uh, it must have been something from the Bauhaus because it looked, it, it looked. Very much like one of those, you know, one of those drawings of a real society flying saucer from Germany, you know. But even though they proved beyond a doubt that Adam did used a lampshade, people still believe it. And, they, and it still gets published as a picture of a real UFO. Oh, yeah. And, and it's the same yeah. thing with, like, Billy Meyer.
1: You faked all of his photos. And then I forgot the gentleman's name who did the, Remember the whole Gulf Breeze Florida UFO flap? That guy faked all of his pictures as well too, and people thought that they were real. Even all that Hannibal stuff from the the old drill and the old Nazi UFOs, all that stuff is faked as well too. You know. Well,
0: it may it may I, very well be, but you notice the similarity. Like I say, Adamski's lampshade, the similarities that set the template for hundreds of different pictures of UFOs and even UFO blueprints <laughs> from Adamski's lampshade. And I think that. I think the lampshade showed up in about 1947. It was one of the first ones out. That just highlights and
1: illustrates how this whole topic, all that stuff, in the mix of all the fake stuff, there is real stuff. And that's what the guy, you know, that brown guy is trying to prove. That's what makes this feel like a fringe, pseudoscientific kind of BS top where people just can't take it seriously. And that ties into the fact I really appreciate How she was using 2001 Kubrick's film as a reference point for some of this phenomenon, the interpretation of this phenomenon. Like I thoroughly respected how she used the analogy of the monolith was a basically a cinema screen. Do you remember that she devoted? Oh yeah, yeah,
0: I do remember that. She goes to a great length to establish the influence. Uh, film franchises like Star Wars and Star Trek. Then she even has a chapter on, on the Star Wars religion. My late daughter, uh, Vivian, was a Star Wars aficionado. They even played the theme from Star Wars at her funeral. Somebody took a national poll back way, way back to one of the presidential elections, I think, when Bush was running, and found out that Darth Vader had won for president, he would have gotten most of the vote. Under 24, they would have voted for Darth Vader. The old Spielberg-Lucas uh, thing really, really hit home. But you remember in the preface that I read, and I said how important it was, I emphasized it, that Jacques Vallée, when he was consulting for Spielberg in, in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, he... Asked Spielberg to film the uh, phenomenon as if they were interdimensional, to to leave it open for the audience to consider whether they were interdimensional rather than than extraterrestrial. And and Spielberg refused. Now, this bears out, and later uh, her research shows that Hollywood is writing the scenario on the UFO thing. And they're writing the scenario on the political thing these days, too, but also they write the scenario. On the whole uh, UFO thing and the ancient alien thing, you notice on the uh, on the History Channel, Prometheus Entertainment's ancient alien show, the whole ancient alien thing uh, was originally presented by Palmer and Shaver, 1944 to 1949. And and never, I have never heard any Prometheus production of Ancient Aliens, have I ever heard any mention of Palmer and Shaver, none whatsoever. The Ancient Alien
1: TV show is purely there for entertainment. They have a formula that works and all these most of their audience will believe anything you know where i stand with that i think the whole ancient alien thing is. the show at least there's some interesting things they go into but then that clown with the weird hair goes into saying oh it
0: was alien
1: the ancient alien tv show is is kind of a joke it's
0: for entertainment but yeah, however really entertaining. I, I, I said i said this whole thing, the whole thing is a rerun of the Shaver mystery, and, and Shaver and Palmer get no credit whatsoever. However, Shaver and Palmer, if you go back in Palmer and Shaver's background, you find that this, their seeds for were were, what they were doing, were all planted by H. G. Wells. Jules Verne and uh, Edmund Hamilton, the early science fiction writers, Blavatsky. all of that, and, Blav- yes, and, Blav- and, and Blavatsky, definitely. They planted the scene, and then Palmer and Shaver proceeded to plant this whole ancient alien thing and bring it all out. And the UFO thing And everything Shaver himself Was caught in the same problem That so many of these people today are He had to have a materialistic answer For everything Everything had to be materialistic And but finally
1: see, that's the problem With the whole nuts and bolts Ufology field Or movement Whatever you want to call it The bottom line is No one knows this phenomena. The people who take the more spiritual, like magical side of it, and even the to the nuts and bolts side of it, no one knows what phenomena is. You read this book too; you're still left with question marks. Like, what is this? No one knows. Well, no one knows. But as I said,
0: Jacques Vallee, who I. I think he also, I don't think he's inspired by Shaver, but Jacques Vallée wrote a book called Passport to Magonia, and I think you've read it. What he came up with in Passport to Magonia, he got, here again, church records from 800 A.D. in France and airships, and we will assume they had sails, airships landed, came down out of the clouds and landed in French farms. And we're doing what the dirigibles did years later in the Midwest, and were buying food from the farmers and and trading goods from an interdimensional land they called Magonia. Yeah, which, and remember which, they had they held some of the townspeople captive. Remember? Yeah, yeah, they were gonna lynch them and burn them at the stake, and this Christian abbot came out and saved them. He saved them; otherwise, they would have burned up these aliens from Magonia. Now, in relation to this, I want to read something from uh, Michio Kaku's Parallel Worlds. Let me read this. But perhaps the strangest of these anomalies is the possibility of parallel universes and gateways connecting them. If we recall the metaphor introduced by Shakespeare that all the world is a stage, then general relativity admits the possibility of trapdoors. But instead of leading to the basement of the theater, we find that the trapdoors lead to a parallel stages like the original. Imagine the stage of life consisting of multi-story stages, one on top of the next. On each stage, the actors read their lines and wander around the set thinking that their stage is the only one, oblivious to the possibilities of alternate realities. However, if one day they accidentally fall into the trapdoor, they find themselves thrust into an entirely new stage with new laws, new rules, and a new script. And that, of course, is Mishu who is a formidable scientist in his own right. Now, what I'm suggesting is I think the technology is real. In fact, the Navy and the Air Force are now free. Their pilots are free to make reports and not be stigmatized for making reports. We're starting to get reports of, uh, you know, wing camera photographs and all of these objects. And these things obviously appear to be genuine technological vehicles. They are. Do you notice how this
1: phenomenon, every time it presents itself, always based on the point in history or where the society is at technologically, is always just a little bit ahead.
0: Of course, I understand, yeah. but what I'm saying is, I'm going to be like Jacques Brel, and I'm going to remind you of Charles Fort and the fleet of dirigibles that were appearing after the Civil War in the Midwest, 1800s. Yeah, in the, the early yeah. yeah, 1800s, and then and, and they were taking people for rides and they were buying food from farmers, they'd lower yeah. down, they'd fly over the farm, the farmer would come out and here would be this great big, you know, we'd be almost like the good the Goodyear blimp, you know, <laughs> looming over yeah, them. they yeah, always what? seem just to be a little ahead of the curve of where
1: we're at. That's why I well, do yeah. think that they're beings from, like, Alpha Centauri. or.
0: This is a slice of the simultane that's very close to us. You know,
1: I'm a huge fan of Jacques Vallée. I was finally able to meet him when me and my buddy Davis went to the contact in the desert. He even says, we don't know what this is. Most likely this whole phenomena is not extraterrestrial beings from another planet. Something deeper and more strange and weirder. The best way I can relate or reference this is like this phenomenon reminds me of the archetypal prototype of Loki. They are definitely tricksters and pranksters.
0: There's no doubt about that. And, and, yeah, um, they throw us carrots, but they also yeah.
1: throw us a bunch of BS as well too. And they try to like steer us on like horse to ultimate truth, whatever that is. But they also throw in a bunch of things to throw us off too. It's a very trickster-based phenomenon yeah and reading this book i'm not left with when i finish reading the last sentence i'm not this isn't anything revolutionary Uh, or uh, i didn't have like a grand epiphany after i finished reading this book there's nothing new in here
0: have you gotten to the point in her book where she talks about Sister Maria of uh, Argata's episodes of My Location. Yeah, great. Uh, but, yeah, 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 great. I read now the whole book. That, now that is incredible, and I don't think I've ever, ever found this. I haven't read it in bloody and this is something Charles Fort should have stumbled on, but he didn't, and uh, I'll read it. In the early 1600s, that means that Hermes was still, he still had an imprimatur, In the early 1600s, as Spain was exploring and colonizing Western North America, the youthful Maria claimed that with the help of angels, she flew through space and over the ocean to New Mexico. Her sister nuns said they witnessed Maria during her alleged bilocation and that she rose a few feet off the floor and was surrounded by a brilliant light. The veracity of Maria's account of her experiences was bolstered by reported encounters between Franciscan missionaries in New Mexico and members of a native tribe of Guananos who presented themselves as eager to be baptized. Allegedly, the Guananos said that they had been visited by a lady in blue who spoke to them about the Catholic faith. This story traveled back to Spain with Alonso de Benavides, the first commissioner of the Inquisition in New Mexico. He met with Maria and questioned her closely about what she saw and with whom she spoke. Benavides was impressed by her account, which included details of things of which he thought she could not have been aware, and he made a report to the king of Spain, Philip IV. Maria's journeys were strategically politicized by Benavides. He and the others used them to justify their continued funding and efforts to expand the Spanish Empire. The missionaries wanted to believe and most likely did believe that Sister Maria actually appeared in physical form to the people who lived there. Benavides and others used this miraculous story as proof that God wanted this area under Spanish rule. Okay, now, how valid that is, I'm not sure, because as, as I say, it was politicized, obviously she thought she went there, and if what she saw when she was there uh was confirmed, you know as far as the topography and the and the landscape and all that, that would be enough as far as the Indians seeing her are concerned we we don't know but 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 what this points out is that this whole remote viewing phenomenon. And as we know, remote viewing and and that Stargate project, you definitely can go. And we've done it ourselves. You know, we've gone to Aldebaran, and and we do it. So, yes, we can take an astral space flight. And, you know, Hermes says so. And Maria actually, as I said, at the early 1600s, that was before Hermes... Lost his imprimatur, and she could have actually read it, or somebody could have told her about it. And, uh, and Hermes was, uh, you know, was considered to be acceptable to Catholics at that time. And what I'm trying to say is, is that I agree with what Diana is trying to get across here in this book that that a lot of this is the imagination, a lot of it is being promoted or being programmed by our science fiction and films and what have you, and our imagination. And yet, how much of that is a reflection of what actually exists in this other slice of the simultane? There may be, for instance, what we're seeing now with the UFOs, they are technologically at least several hundred, maybe a hundred years in advance of what we have right now. I don't know exactly what the advanced state would be, but their maneuvers are certainly better than what we can do. However, those dirigibles that came out of the Simultane into the Midwest after the Civil War, they were advanced by about 20 or 30 years before Giraffe started building them in Germany. So the fact that the technology is real doesn't really mean that the, the interdimensional explanation is wrong. In fact, it tends to confirm it. What do you think about that? I agree, but
1: yet again, as this has been like a lifelong interest for me. I, I still can't put my finger on a explanation for what all this is. I'm still left with the more you know, the more books I read, the more you know, conferences I go to the more questions I'm left with, like, I, I don't have any answers. Like, I, I don't know what this phenomena is. Basically, like, it, it, there's a bunch of weird stuff going on with this phenomenon. I think what she's trying to do is, like, you know, point the readers that all this may be related and be stemming from one, you know, core, basically. And she doesn't have the answers either. either. I gave you the book. I don't know if you read it yet. The interior castle by Teresa of Avila. It's a fantastic yeah. book about like the seven mansions and like, you know, how to, you know, you step through each to get closer to God or per se, like, you know, all this stuff, like there's parallels to like, you know, with like the whole UFO phenomenon. Like, you know, if you read this and, you know, look into it, but you, you, put your lens, you know, the lens of, you know, ufology and the UFO like phenomenon on, like, you know, you can interpret it that way. As, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. The, well, the, in, I'm the, gonna, in I'm, hindsight, the I'm, book, the, the book was good. I recommend it to everybody, but like, you know, if this is your first forway, foray into this whole like, you know, phenomenon and whatever, like there, there, there's better books
0: out there. Yeah. Well, I'm going to recommend the book too. Uh, and and I, I i'm gonna i you know i i'm gonna recommend it because basically I think even though uh as i say she's uh she's uh, really thrown thrown some some curves to the materialists but but then but yeah yeah even I, though yeah.
1: like I don't know if she doesn't come out and say it but like you know she's a Catholic at heart and like she it seems oh, to me how she closed out this book like she's trying to tie this back to some of the you know Catholicism and some of the belief systems in there with the whole conversion of Tyler and you know whatever yeah. it's like but I didn't really appreciate that but I, I appreciated everything else in the book and the fact that the academic yeah. like you know her friend you know Jeff Krepl. Uh, you know, wrote a book or you know around this topic, and she has kind of a yeah. different spin than uh, Jeffrey
0: Kreipl does. Yeah. But yeah, I
1: enjoyed it. Yeah.
0: I enjoyed it. Well, before we sign off, because we're we're starting to get uh, down toward the end of the hour. But before we sign off, I'm gonna I'm gonna put in some plugs for for our film Beyond Lemuria, and and uh, uh, because we have the answers to all, all the questions that she's raising, and here is here is from from our booklet on on the shaver on the shaver aspect of it uh here here's our here's our description of the simultane. There are three red dwarf novelettes that constitute one complete fantasy novel and they were published from nineteen forty seven to nineteen forty nine in two different magazines. The third part called Erdus Cliff fully reveals Shaver's interdimensional concept, which he calls the simultane. This is an endless succession of dimensional layers or membranes he calls nows. This sounds like the strings and brains of quantum physics and theory. But now remember, this was 1949. And we, uh, of course, they had a machine, which the Witch of Ernest Cliff ran, an ancient ancient machine, which we recreated a modern version of it in the film, in our film called The Intergravitron. And uh, we were able to open these portals in the the film and show you the, you know, going through the vortexes, uh, in the film. So beyond the Miriam, be sure you get the second edition because the second edition has the shaver material in it. Now, All right, Pope,
1: Pope, before we close this out, I just want to see, get your opinion. Do you notice how she kind of circled back with the whole, uh, you know, Maria of Agreda, like, you know, and the whole New Mexico thing kind of tying it back to her her and James finding that artifact in New Mexico and how that point in the book where she talks, you know, like she, you know, she brought that up again and like Tyler was silent when she asked like, oh, like, could this be like kind of the same area of the whole you know, Maria Vigreda thing happened, and he was kind of silent. What, what are your thoughts about that?
0: No, I, I, I don't think that. Look, I, um, I, I, don't think that the so-called artifact that James, that James found, uh, the one that we never that she, she talks, she talks around it. She never talks about it. She just talks around yeah. it and said, "Oh yeah, yeah, this this artifact that, and and nobody could figure out where it came from. It was otherworldly and all that." But, but do you artifact, see how
1: strategically she placed the whole Maria thing yeah, she, in New Mexico, oh, yeah, yeah, and, she and she was in New Mexico yeah, blindfolded. Yeah, she, and, yeah. and she,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well I said I said that they're taking her out to that site was an initiation. They initiated her. That whole business of blindfolding her and taking her out there. That's right straight out of the yeah, uh, Masonic Yeah, that's a form
1: strict. of initiation.
0: Yeah. And I'm going, tell, I'm going to tell you something. That's what the strict observance did to Blavatsky. When Blavatsky was 19 years old, That they, 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 had, a, they had a Comasonic uh, Lodge of strict observance, and these people blindfolded that 19-year-old Russian girl and, and put her in a carriage and took her to a, took her to a lodge. And sat her down in the chamber of reflection with the skull you know and everything and and, and made her sign a made her sign a uh you know a, a pledge to obey the secret master whom he whom she would never know and they that's what what was done to blavatsky and these people did the same thing tyler and and James did the same thing to Diana. They yeah, this, this was it took, the book and they, of
1: initiation. And they, and they, and they, and
0: they, yeah, right. And they took her out. They took her out to this site, which had already been filmed on the X-Files. And, and uh, so they took her out to this Supposedly. sacred site. Yeah. So And then she looks around for... For an, uh, you know, for an artifact that we don't find out till two chapters later what she found, and the, then it turns out not to be, you know, it turns out to not to pass pump muster as far as the analysis yeah the, the
1: whole thing with her in the desert that was just fluff, <laughs> you know that that, that was just I, plot
0: no, fluff. no 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 it was not it they, they were initiating her into their invisible college that's what that was. It was It has all the remarks of an initiation. I agree, but she never really
1: focused... You know what I mean? She didn't really focus in too much on that. It, it 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 was fluff until the end where you kind of, you know what I mean, got the impression that most readers that, you know, this was an initiation of sorts.
0: Yeah, all right. Now, now I'm going to have an initiation. I'm going to end this thing up with an initiation. That, that in Beyond Lemuria at the end of the film... Up on top of of Mount Shasta, we we conjure Hermes Trismegistus, the guy who started all this to visible appearance, and in the film, he's played by the master Lon Duquette, who does a very, very good job of of, of, of portraying Hermes Trismegistus, rises above the mountain, and, and tells us, you seek to understand why such mountains as this are sacred and holy, As the Master hermistress, Trismegasus, I taught you that man is a microcosm of the greater universe. As a student of our Hermetic Master Phylos, you learned that you have all the planets of your solar system living within you, but you are closest to Mother Earth. She is the greatest planetary presence within your spiritual body. So when you climb a sacred mountain in a spiritual state of mind, you are ascending to the heights of your own planetary sphere. You become one with the earth as she reaches to the heavens. In Kabbalistic terms, you are aspiring to Kether of Malkuth. If you wonder why we have myths and legends of mysterious temples that appear on sacred mountains and strange creatures that inhabit the caverns beneath them, you might ask yourself, how far does this microcosmic universe within yourself extend? How many previous lifetimes have you lived on this planet? How many other lives and other dimensions are you living right now? We see an endless march of worlds going on and on beyond our conception, and yet it is only one dimension that we perceive. There is an invisible infinity of parallel and adjacent universes just outside of our limited perception in which our counterparts, our shadows and reflections, live and die behind dark curtains that most men never part except in dreams. And this whole vast interconnected multiverse Belongs to each of us alone. We are the masters of our own personal cosmic infinity, where life imitates art and art imitates life, and everything in creation is a metaphor. You carry heaven and hell in your own pocket, as above, so below, as within, so without. In our philosophy, These other dimensions are considered to be levels of reality. There are many sub-levels and super-levels, but three essential realities include them all. Your personal reality, your shared reality, and the ultimate reality. To resolve these three realities into one, you must find a still, silent center point within yourself, where the veiled light we call God resides. You will find God nowhere else. Uncover the light and let it shine forth from within you. For that light is the ultimate reality. It transforms your personal reality and it illuminates your shared reality. To the one who is illuminated, all others are reflections and aspects of himself. This is the one source of his compassion and the true measure of his morality. However, I must leave you with a warning. Wisdom and immortality are the treasures of enlightenment, but no one else can give you that which is yours to find within yourself. No one else can make the decisions for you. Good and evil are for you alone to define. In darkness you may find the light, or beyond the light you may discover darkness. For in truth you can't have one without the other. The choice must always be yours. Now, I'm not sure that uh, Diana Pulsulka would uh, agree with that, but that is hermetic philosophy, and uh, it's very possible that Maria Argheda was privy to something very similar to that, and certainly it, it corresponds with what uh, with what she's putting forth in this book. so this is the uh, concludes the, uh, the our show tonight, and uh, we'll be back next week. Thank you, de Muzi, for you know for coming on board. We'll see you next week, and uh, meanwhile, good magic.